Well, good evening, everybody. How are you doing this evening? We doing good? Awesome, awesome. So good to see you. Uh, welcome to week three of Sunday School on the topic of eschatology. And uh, just an encouragement, if you haven't, uh, if you missed a week or maybe it's your uh, first time joining us, each week we record the previous weeks, uh, and so they're, they're released on Tuesdays. And, and really with eschatology, what we're doing is every week is kind of building on another week. So if you were unable to watch a week or, um, or maybe tonight we're talking through some things and you're like, huh, like what, what is, you know, we, what we've kind of been building. And so week one... Uh, we talked about, it was entitled Eschatology as Soteriology. In essence, we said that the, the, all of eschatology, as we're talking about the end of things, everything with eschatology has to do with salvation. That uh, salvation is not something that has simply happened in our past, but it's happening in our present, and it's also happening in our future. That uh, we use sayings where like, I was saved, I got saved. Um, yes, I was saved, but we also understand I am saved and also I will be saved. That justification is salvation that happened in our past. Sanctification is salvation happening in our present. And glorification is what is happening in our future. And, and so when we're talking about eschatology, week one we talked about the eschatology is really about salvation. And, and not just salvation of humanity, but salvation of all creation, that the cosmos are being saved. And, uh, and then last week, we talked about Pentecostal eschatology. And uh, as, as people of the Spirit looking at eschatology um, as, uh, as people of, of the Spirit and how early Pentecostals identified themselves with the early church in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 um, and, and saw the, the Spirit and the outpouring of the Spirit as sign of the imminency of Christ's return. And so how we want to be people of the Spirit. And there's a tension at times where uh, we talked about between sign eschatology and psi eschatology or spirit eschatology. And so uh, we, we kind of talked and, and said as people of the Spirit, we are, we are distinguished by the Spirit and the size of, of the Spirit. Now our topic for this evening is going to revolve around the millennium. And uh, we're going to look tonight at uh, three major views regarding the millennium. There are three major views, which is premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And these are the, the, th the three major views um, regarding the millennium. And, but tonight, I, I actually want to discuss it in four uh, sections, so four major views, if you will, to show a distinction in two different premillennial views, which is historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. And we're going to be looking at these three uh, major views on the millennium and seeking to answer the question, all of this, the millennium, it revolves around Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. In essence, all of these views stem from what do we do with this passage? What do we do with Revelation chapter 1, 
uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And the diversity in the opinions stem from how to interpret these six verses. And we're going to look at each of these views. We're going to look at their interpretation of Revelation chapter 20. And uh, I figured, let's go ahead and just read it. Sound good? Revelation chapter 20, we're actually going to read verses 1 all the way through 15. And as you're turning there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight. God, I thank you that you have brought us to this point. I thank you for the opportunity, God, to read and study your word. God, we recognize that uh, we are so privileged to be able to have your word in print and here with us and be able to study it. Because, Lord, for 15, 1600 years, this could not happen. So, Lord, I pray tonight your spirit will guide us and lead us. And uh, God, that we'll learn, we'll grow, and that our hearts will be stirred for what is ahead of us. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. 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 Verse 1, John the Revelator writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He sees the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead and their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army, a numberless, as numberless as sand among the seashore. And I saw them as they went up, uh, up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opening, were opened, including the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up, gave up their dead. 
and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so we're going to look tonight at uh, these different views, uh, the four views, and we're going to go in this order uh, from oldest view to newest view. So the first view we'll look at is historic premillennialism. Then we're going to look at amillennialism. Then we're going to look at postmillennialism. And the last one we'll look at is dispensational premillennialism. I will write all of them up on the board so you have the spelling and such. Uh, for, for each of them. And uh, depending on what tradition you come out of, uh, honestly, and even if uh, you're a part of a single tradition, you, you, there, you might even in yourself have a hodgepodge of these four, these four views. And uh, the goal tonight is not to um, minimize one view up against another. It's, it's to help us understand um, different approaches to this specific passage, um, while at the same time learning and gaining respect for people that, that hold different, uh, different views uh, than, than maybe what our tradition holds. Um, I will, uh, at the end, summarize uh, what uh, we uh, call distinctions. And so we kind of talked about that last week. So I don't feel a need to have to um, convince you tonight because I... I really wanted to, that to be last week. You know, last week was the convincing as Pentecostals, this is what we believe. Um, I will, throughout this, uh, uh, give some, some Snope uh, notes, side notes and, and such. So the first uh, that we're going to look at tonight is historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism. Now, when we're talking uh, about these verses, everything is talking about the millennium. What do we do with this thousand-year reign? A thousand-year binding of Satan, a thousand-year reign. Um, uh, what, what, what does it mean? What is it for? And so historic premillennialism is the belief that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise. Those that remain will be translated in the air. And at this moment, upon Christ's second coming, Christ will establish a literal 1,000-year reign on the earth. A literal reign on the earth. Uh, historic premillennialism is going to treat Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, as literal. Now, how, his, how historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, how they are all approaching the book of Revelation is very similar. They're going to uh, look at the context uh, and, and, and the context and to the churches that, were, uh, that this letter was being written to. Um, and then when we approach Revelation 20, this is about the only place that maybe some, some different uh, ways of looking at it are going to gonna change. So it's going to be a literal approach to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Historic premillennialism 
is the oldest view of the church, of the historic church. This was the dominant view in the early church up until around the 5th century when St. Augustine started articulating amillennialism. Again, historic premillennialism is a literal, visible, glorious, and victorious return of Christ to the, to the earth at the end of the age that Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years with the saints. The first description of the millennium and the reason I'm saying the millennium, and we're starting here, is because this view has sort of defined what the millennium is. And the first description of the millennium was written by a church father by the name of Papias of Heropolis. I probably missaid his name, so, uh, that, you know. And uh, Papias lived from about 60 AD to 120 AD. Uh, Justin Martyr, who's another early church father, and St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was a bishop in the early church, are all early proponents of historic premillennialism. Uh, they all wrote about it. They all adhered to it. In the late 100s, the Montanists continued this theological trend. Papias, who we're going to read in a moment, uh, a description, the earliest description that is outside of Scripture that we have of what the millennium might look like, Papias was a hearer of John the Revelator. He lived and heard the words of John, and he was a companion of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was not only uh, potentially Papias's friend, but Polycarp was a disciple of John the Revelator. Um, Irenaeus, who we have writings from him, who was a historic premillennialism, was a disciple of Polycarp. So Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who's a disciple of John. Papias uh, heard John speak and was, a and was a companion, an early church father with, uh, with Polycarp. And so this first description in Christian writing about the millennium comes from this guy, Papias. Um, who, who would have heard John speak, which is really fascinating. And he writes this about the millennium, the reign of Christ on the earth after his return. He says, the days will come in which vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and in each branch 10,000 twigs, and in each true twig 10,000 shoots, and in each of the shoots 10,000 clusters. And on every one of the clusters, 10,000 grapes. And every grape, when pressed, will give 200 gallons of wine. And when any of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another shall cry out, I am a better cluster, take me. Bless the Lord through me. So this is the image that they had of the millennium, which is going to be this incredible grand time where the earth is yielding uh, crop and fruit beyond imagine. It was this beautiful image. Papias uh, was perhaps the first post-biblical author to describe the thousand-year reign or the thousand-year visible kingdom of Christ. 
that, we're, that we call the millennium. Justin Martyr uh, shared Papias's millennial expectation. Justin Martyr was a, a second, first, second century church apostle. In his dialogue with Trifo, Justin affirmed his expectation that the faithful departed would rise from the dead and rise with Christ for a thousand years in a rebuilt Jerusalem. Justin, he would connect the millennium with the return of Christ. Be worth noting, perhaps, Justin Martyr lived between 100 AD and 160 uh, AD, 165 AD, excuse me. And uh, Justin would have been writing about a rebuilt Jerusalem after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Justin would have uh, grown up in a time where uh, Jerusalem was completely wiped out. Now, uh, outside of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 28. Because this, if we were to follow the pattern of this scripture, um, it, it would perhaps describe what a historic premillennialism adheres to. Again, all of these views, and I'll, I will try my best to articulate each view's interpretation of these scriptures. And remember, the, the, the views do not, there is no questioning, is Jesus returning? There is no questioning, is there going to be a judgment of the dead? The question is, is the millennium literal? Is it figurative? Will it happen in history? And where does it happen in relation to Jesus' return? So 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28. But there is an order to this resurrection. Now, just kind of underline that. So I find it interesting that that's the language. There's an order. Uh, there's a sequence is, is how I see that. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. And all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. When Jesus comes, there's going to be a resurrection. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. Verse 25, you can underline this part. For Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemy, enemies beneath his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things under his authority, this does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then when all things are under his authority, the son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. So um, this is, uh, you know, we, we've been in two weeks so far of eschatology and we haven't done any timelines. Well, tonight, if you are a map person, a timeline person, uh, this is your night because I'm going to draw timelines of each of these. 
And uh, this is really the moment I know that everybody's been waiting for up to this point. Uh, this is the whole reason we came. And uh, so I'm going to try to do like some, some justice to, um, uh, uh, in, in my artwork, but it's not going to be as nice and fancy as the timelines you saw walking down the hallways of your church in 1983 because they were grand and uh, real uh, victorious looking. So uh, here we go. We're going to start. Everything starts when Jesus came, right? We're going to call this the first advent. Each of these views uh, begin when we're looking in history at the first advent, the death or the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So Jesus ascends. Well, what happens now? Historic premillennialism says that this is the church age. That since the day of Pentecost, we have been living uh, in the church age. There um, is also a variety. In every one of these views, there's a variety. Um, I, I would present historic premillennialism as during this church aid, there's going to be great times, there's going to be bad times, there's going to be increase, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be um, uh, effects of, of oh, living in a world that is under the fall, but you're going to see the kingdom can advance, the king, uh, uh, Christians can be persecuted, Christians can become presidents, and uh, there, there's, there's a whole mixture of what is going to happen. But uh, the church age is then um, consummated at the second advent, which is the second coming of Christ. And at the second coming of Christ, you have uh, the dead first shall rise, the resurrection of believers. And... You have the translation of those that are living in the air. And uh, this is all happening um, uh, together. You also have in this moment, uh, Satan is bound. You have Satan being bound. And Jesus is coming back to establish his reign on earth in a literal thousand-year reign. And he is going to reign with the resurrected believers and the believers that were translated at his coming. Uh, we will reign with him for a thousand years. A thousand years is a time for creation to enter into its sanctification process. I'll talk about this maybe later in our summary. Like us, we are justified, sanctified, and glorified in our future. We were saved, are saved, will be saved. Romans chapter 8, verse 19, I believe it is says that creation is groaning for the moment 
that the children of God will be revealed. When are we revealed? At the resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise. We that remain will meet him in the air. Creation is groaning for its salvation. At the second coming of Christ and the resurrection, salvation will be justified. The thousand-year reign, it will be sanctified, receive its healing and be moving towards its healing, but it will not be fully glorified until the new heaven and a new earth. And when we said new, we're not talking like something different than the old, but actually a restoration and a much better, it's just going to be better. Um, we, we talked about that, that our word new. Um, next, after a thousand year reign, um, you know, Satan's going to be released again. And, uh, but this time, uh, Satan's going to be released, but he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And at this moment, at the end of the 1,000-year reign, you were, um, you, you're going to have the resurrection of all the dead. Not just the righteous. The resurrection of all the dead. And then after the resurrection of all the dead, I, I ran out of room here. I, I gave this side a whole lot of space. Um, and so the resurrection of all the dead, um, which at the resurrection of all the dead, uh, historic premillennialism say this is the second resurrection that's the final judgment. And then after the final judgment, you have new heavens and new earth. <laughs> Does that can you kind of see a little bit? I apologize. So this moves here, thousand year reign. Uh, Satan will be released um, at the end. Uh, he'll be thrown into like a fire. The resurrection of all the dead will happen. Uh, the second resurrection, which is uh, what Revelation chapter 20 says. And at that moment is the great white judge throne. Uh, judge throne? Um, great white judgment. Um, the final judgment, and then after um, the final judgment, we see in Revelation 21 and 22, we see heaven descending to earth, and now earth and heaven are one in a new heavens and a new earth, and it's going to be glorious. It's important to worth noting, all four views have a first advent, the second advent, have the final day of judgment, have a resurrection, and they have the new heavens and the new earth. The question is like, when? I made the joke in week one. Um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't, it doesn't really matter if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I just want to make the trip. Yeah. Amen. Um, I will say, though, um, th this, is, this is very familiar to a lot of us. Um, uh, this is very, as, as, as the Assemblies of God, but as Pentecostals, we are 
a premillennialist denomination and also movement. We, um, we believe that there's going to be a literal reign of Christ on the earth. Um, maybe an argument for a thousand-year reign. Well, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, this is the first resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection here is this word anastasis. And everywhere in the New Testament, when this Greek word anastasis is used, it is used to refer to a physical resurrection. More specifically, the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus did not resurrect spiritually or as a ghost or seem to be resurrected. He, his body literally got up out of the grave and walked um, on the earth for 40 days and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The first physical, and so uh, it, it's important because we're going to look in a moment at the next one, which is amillennialism. Historic premillennialism, when it looks at this is the first resurrection, it's going to use that word resurrection in a stasis to mean a literal physical resurrection. Amillennialism is going to say that its, its use of anastasis for the first resurrection is not a physical resurrection, but it is when we are uh, die to ourselves and we're resurrected to new life and we're born again. Um, and then at the second resurrection is a physical resurrection. There's only one resurrection when Jesus comes back. But historic premillennialism says there are two resurrections. Resurrection when Jesus comes back, uh, and that's for all the Christians, and, and then the resurrection at the end of the millennium, which is all of, like, everybody, all history. Uh, Hitler's going to have to stand before the great white throne of judgment. Amen. He's going to get what he deserves. <laughs> you know? And, and um, uh, we, we are going to... Um, so then there's two resurrections in this. Um, that, that would be one argument, is, is when we look at the Greek text, what, what is it actually saying? Uh, anastasis um, would imply a physical resurrection, not just at the second resurrection, but also the first resurrection. It's important to look at the context of Revelation chapter 20. I encourage you, uh, because we said eschatology is not a class on Revelation, Eschatology is, uh, we, 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 we talked about that in that reading, interpreting the Bible, and approaching Revelation, because Revelation is not the only place that talks about eschatology. In fact, out of the three weeks, this is like the first time that we've really read a whole lot of Revelation, because the New Testament is filled with the topic of the last things. But in the context of Revelation 20, we understand that it, uh, it was... Comfort for those who have been martyred, but also who will face martyrdom. The book of Revelation was written to uh, seven churches that were experiencing uh, persecution, but also would experience even greater persecution. And because 
these Christians would die a physical death, in Revelation 20, they could also expect a physical resurrection. It wasn't written to explain what happened when they were saved. It was written to explain what would happen. This is also happening uh, on the earth. This isn't, Revelation 20 is not happening in heaven. Because in Revelation 19.11, John sees heaven open and Jesus descending. The only other time in Revelation when heaven is open is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, when John is invited to come up here and receive the vision. There's only two parts in Revelation where heaven is actually open, where John is invited to see the vision and when Jesus is descending. So this is a historic Premillennialism. Now, let's look at the next one, amillennialism, which uh, in recent times is is probably having a is is having a big surge um, because out of all of the views, um, it it is one of the more simpler ones to. Uh, to understand. Um, ah, this here, ah, in ah millennial, it means no. So in essence, no millennial. But however, ah millennialism doesn't mean that they do not believe in a millennium, but rather that there is not a future uh, millennium that um, is in the far future. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 Amillennialism is going to take a figurative approach to this passage because um, as many take, uh, as historic premillennialism, as, as, as many in that vein read Revelation and look at it figuratively and look at it through the, the trying to understand the imagery of what's happening in the context of the people the letter's been written to, they're doing that as well. But when they get to Revelation 20, they're going, hey, we're going to continue on this uh, figurative language while his poor premillennialist would would say, hey, no, we're going to take a a more literal approach to this passage. Now, amillennialism, you've probably heard of this guy, um, St. Augustine. Um, He was in the 4th century was a proponent and one of the first um, people for uh, amillennialism. And amillennialism was dominant from Augustine in the 4th century all the way through the Reformation and is still the dominant view in Roman Catholicism. Um, Amillennialism is held by most Presbyterians, uh, most Lutherans, especially those that come from historic Reformation churches, and also a lot of evangelical groups today. It's very, um, very popular. Key beliefs um, is, is this, that uh, why are we going, in essence, omelettism, I'm trying to phrase it, the argument, why are we waiting for the future reign of Christ as if it's not already present, that Christ is already reigning and is exalted in heaven right now? Now, it's important because all the other beliefs, all the other views believe that as well. We believe that Jesus is exalted, amen? We believe he's reigning and that he's ruling. Um, 
in heaven. All millennialists, uh, that when you, uh, believers who have died, believers who have been martyred, are reigning with Christ. Now, um, Christ, all millennialists believe Christ will return. Uh, and when Christ returns, resurrection and judgment will occur. And then the final states will be established. In all millennialism, it is when Jesus comes back, that's it. And judgment happens. Everybody's resurrected. There's one resurrection. The thousand years in Revelation chapter 20 is a symbolic number of completeness. Um, a big distinction of amillennialism is that Satan uh, was bound or has been binded up. And it began in, the, in Christ's ministry. So let's look at this. What about Satan? What is, with Revelation chapter 20, what do we do when it says that, that, that Satan is, is bound up? Um, because, to be honest with you, like, it doesn't kind of feel like Satan's bound up sometimes. Right? Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 through 29, is going to be a hermeneutic that they would use, a way of understanding Revelation chapter 20 that amillennialists use. Jesus says, he's accused of casting out demons because he's a demon or he has a demon. Jesus says, but if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is, has arrived among you. For who is powerful Enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods. Only someone even stronger. Someone who would tie him up and then plunder his house. In essence, Jesus, and the work of Jesus and his ministry, has tied up Satan and bound him. And this is the hermeneutic used to interpret Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20. The millennium... For amillennialism is the church age. There's going to be great things. There's going to be tough things. There's going to be uh, advancement of the gospel. There's going to be all of this stuff that, that happens. It, and this is uh, the millennium where we are reigning with Christ now. We, you can also still believe you're reigning with Christ now and not be amillennial. I want to just make sure that's clear. Um, but the big deciding thing is when Christ returns, it's going to be one grand victorious event with one resurrection of all the dead and one judgment of all and the new heaven and new earth immediately follow. So we say it's the easiest because in essence, Christ returns the end. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, so, it starts here, right? With the first advent. Then you have the church age. Also, this would be called the millennium. And we are awaiting the second advent, which is the return of Christ. And at the return of Christ... The resurrection will happen, but it will be of all the dead. 
and it'll be resurrection for judgment. Which then leads to the new heavens, new earth. A lot simpler, right? It's attractive in our day and age because of probably the last hundred years, which over-spiritualized a lot of what happens in the end. It's a way of going, I mean, the truth is when Jesus comes back, it's like, it doesn't actually really matter to any of us what happens after that because we know whose we are, Amen. I want to read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, um, and try to articulate it like an amillennial would. Because if this is new, it's going to, it's just, it's like, how, how is this? You know. Verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him in the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on the thrones would be giving authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who beheaded for the testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They, they had not worshipped the beast or his statue or accepted his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Ah, Millennium says that the first resurrection is, is, when we, uh, uh, is when we are born again. We die to ourselves but then we're raised to new life in Christ. And when you die, you, it, it says this in verse four, notice it says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. It didn't say, doesn't, it doesn't say, then I saw their bodies. The implication is, is that this, and I'm reading from an amillennial point of view, so this is not, I'm just prefacing that, this isn't my, personal view, um, is that the, the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. And had, had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Years Again, the thousand years is not taken literally. It is a step that, that we are reigning with Christ now, that when you get saved, you're dead to your sin. You reign with Christ now, and when you die, you continue to reign with him until the resurrection of the dead. We will get our glorified bodies, First Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, um, at the day of judgment. All right. We got to move uh, time-wise. Uh, am I good to erase this? Is that good? Awesome. Speak now or... I mean, well, you can't say nothing now because I already erased it. <laughs> All right, the third view. So now we're moving further along in church history. 
And we're going to look at post-millennialism. Post-millennialism began to become popular in the 18th century. The circumstances that led to this interpretation uh, included the progression of society. Society was getting really good. Um, There's been a lot of technological advancements. People weren't dying from your common cold anymore. There were medical advancements. There was uh, uh, the, the, um, the church was in control of the government. There were a lot of positive things happening. The goal in postmillennialism, in essence, is to Christianize society through preaching and social action, and that this will bring in the millennium. The millennium is, is, is more spoken of like a golden age. A golden age. And this is brought about through the church. Postmillennialism has a very optimistic view of world evangelism. Um, so Patricia, you could probably help me because you were a principal. Uh, when, uh, what was it called when uh, colonialism was based, destina- uh, something destination, um, manifest destination, right? Manifest Destiny. Manifest destiny. There we go. Go back to sixth grade. Manifest destiny. God has called us to take over the world, in essence, right? Manifest destiny is pushing us to go to America, pushing us to do this. Uh, All of that is because of the eschatological view of postmillennialism. That, uh, in essence, was we have to evangelize the world. We've got to uh, make the world better. Um. Jonathan Edwards was an early proponent of postmillennialism. Everybody's heard of Jonathan Edwards, the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, other proponents who were postmillennialists, John Calvin, William Perkins, George Whitefield, Samuel Hopkins, Daniel Whitby, and then a modern day gentleman by the name of Douglas Wilson are all postmillennialists. This was a dominant view up until the early 1900s and mid-1900s when uh, the world went through two world wars. And um, uh, that kind of, how, you know, if things are getting better, and it kind of questions some things. Um, Post-millennialism is the dominant view of the Seven Mountains movement or dominionism movement. These are modern movements today that uh, are forms of Christian nationalism. Uh, You've probably heard it taught or you've even seen YouTube videos, something like that, about the seven seven mountains theory, seven mountains revelation. There are seven mountains that we are, in essence, called to go into and conquer, uh, whether it be government or church or family, uh, business, media, entertainment, sports, like there's seven mountains. And, and in essence, God is calling us into these seven mountains uh, to reclaim them for the Lord 
and that it will usher in that as Christians, should, we are righteous and, or should reign with righteousness and justice and reign with Christ. And so that is um, a form of post-millennialism in action. So when we're looking at the millennium in Revelation 20, it is figurative, but it's not just figurative. Amillennialism viewed it as figurative happening in the present. This is figurative happening in the future. Some postmillennialists even say we could be in the millennium now. Who knows? Because there's no definitive, how, how can you calculate when it starts versus when it ends? That's why there would be, um, so an argument for post what we would say, oh man, but the world's so bad. Like, how can you say this is the millennium now? Um, they would look at very positive views on um, what's happening. Uh, for the first time in the history of mankind, world hunger is almost wiped out. For the first time in the history that, uh, if you, especially if you live in America, if you make over like $15,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. That, that actually conditions in the world have gotten so much better and we're living in the most prosperous time of humanity we ever have lived in, which we are kind of living in the most prosperous time. Clean water is getting to everybody. The gospel is getting expanded. So that would be uh, maybe a view. So let's get into the post-millennial timeline. And if there are any, I don't think there's any post-millennials in here, but if there are, you know, if I, if I butcher this, um, <laughs> help me out. Uh, the first advent, right? Jesus comes. He um, ascends. You have the church age, an unspecified amount of time. All of the churches are, are an unspecified amount of time. Um, and then you have, at some point, the church age is going to move into the golden age or the millennium. That it's going to happen somewhere here. That it's going to happen in history. But it's going to happen before the second coming of Christ. This could be a thousand years. This could be a shorter amount of time. This could be five years. This could be 5,000 years. When Christ comes again after the golden age or the millennium, the second coming will happen. And just like amillennialism, there's one resurrection of the dead. All the dead. Um for final judgment, which then moves into new heavens, new earth. Satan will be bound in the millennium, but it is going to take um, effort uh, and be because Satan is being bound in the present. It is a, it is a progressive work of binding until he... Uh, righteousness is reigning and the golden age is happening. The millennium is now. No. I'm on the wrong notes. 
Millennium is in the future. It could be present. Um, Christ reigns from heaven right now, and he's reigning through the church. The church will extend the kingdom of God on the earth. And the end comes once the church converts all of the nations. And Jesus will return to get his full reward. Post-millennialism. In essence, Jesus comes back after the millennium. Now, now that we've taken a detour of all the different millenniums, let's kind of go back to a premillennial view. So you can see up until the year about 1820, somewhere in there, those were the three dominant views of what was going to happen. You believed in a literal thousand-year reign, you believed in a figurative thousand-year reign that you were living in, or you believed in one that is going to happen in the future, um, and it is figurative as well. In about eight 1820, dispensational premillennialism came on the scene by a guy named John Darby. Now, if you were to research about there, there are three major views on the millennium, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. The reason I've broken it into four is because um, there is a distinction between historic premillennial and dispensational premillennial. Dispensational premillennialism is the newest form of interpreting the end times and is a branch from the premillennialism uh, of, of historic premillennialism, um, while this was founded in the 19th century. So, what was a distinction of premillennialism? A literal thousand-year reign of Christ. So, it's going to be shared in dispensational premillennialism. Now, unlike historic premillennialism, dispensationalism is a hermeneutic in itself for how to approach Scripture. Dispensationalism is a way of seeing scripture and history and a way of understanding it. Rather than the church or Gentiles being grafted into Israel, there's a strong distinction between Israel and the church. Again, there are many forms of even dispensationalism. There's what's called progressive dispensationalism, just like there are other forms of that. So if uh, I, I'm articulating what I find the most common, I understand that there are diversity as well and nuances. In essence, God has a covenant with Israel and God has a covenant with the church um, that that, that God is going to keep his promises with Abraham um, and David and Israel, 
um, but he's also made different promises to the church. It does beg to ask the question, did Jesus fulfill the promises? Was Jesus the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham, Moses, and David? Or is there something else that has to fulfill the promises given to Abraham, Moses, and David? Or does all of it find its fulfillment in Jesus? Historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism would all agree that Jesus is the, is, is the promise. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. Uh, um, dispensational premillennialism would, would make a distinction here. Again, it originates with a man named John Nelson Darby. Darby was uh, the first to really systematize dispensationalism. He came from a highly honorable family. At the age of 21, he converted to, to Christ. In 1825, which is when he uh, kind of started his work on dispensationalism, he entered the ministry within the Church of England, which would be Anglicanism or Episcopalian today, and was given a parish in Ireland. In 1829, he resigned uh, and he became independent. From his earliest days, he believed not only in the future conversion of the Jews, but taught that the Jews would be uh, brought to, uh, back to their homeland. So in dispensational premillennialism, 1948 was a big moment. Um, very consumed dispensationalism. Um, and the book, uh, 88 Reasons, Jesus Coming Back in 1988, remember that book? Um, it, it, it comes from dispensationalism. 89 Reasons, why Jesus is coming back in 89, we missed the calculation. Um, is dispensationalism really uh, uh, consumed with setting dates, times, numbers have uh, big meaning? Darby's distinction between God's plan for Israel and the church formed the basis of what would become the more controversial contribution to evangelicalism today, which is he introduced this idea of a uh, pre-tribulational rapture. to be language very familiar to us, um, believes, and here, here's something that I, I want to make a, a distinction of. Um, Acts 28 is a, is, a, is a pretty big deal because dispensationalism or classical dispensationalism would believe that the church did not begin in Acts chapter 2 the church began in Acts chapter 28 when the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 through 10 concerning the blindness of Israel, announcing that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentile world, Acts 28, 28. Because of this, dispensationalism, all forms of dispensationalism, come out of or at least or maintain. A cessationist viewpoint, meaning if the church started on Acts 28, the gifts 
and the operation of the spirit that happened in the book of Acts ceased in the present dispensation. So it is, stems from a cessationist viewpoint. Let me put an asterisk here, though. There are many dispensationalists, we would call it progressive dispensationalists, that are not cessationists. They do come out of cessationism, but they've moderated, um, uh, they've adapted um, certain viewpoints. Cessationism, in essence, is the gifts of the Spirit, the working of the Spirit are not for today because they were reserved for the apostles and the apostolic age ended in Acts 28 when the church age began. Dispensationalism breaks down history into seven different categories that it calls dispensations. Seven dispensations. They are innocence, conscious, government, patriarchs, law, grace, and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in dispensational eschatology is in the future, in the millennium. So let's do a timeline. I'm going to need a little bit more board space for this one. <laughs> Sound good? So I'm erasing all of this. Let's start up here. So you have the first advent, right? This is where it all begins. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ, his ascension. Then we are going to move into uh, the church age. If we would like, we can make some modifications here that you have Acts 1 through 28, which would be the apostolic age. I don't know if that's solely fair because this is the whole idea of cessationism. Um, there's very few adherents to cessationism anymore. Um, just one really loud guy. Uh, his name is John MacArthur. But um, for the most part, uh, nobody really uh, believes that anymore. Um, then we have the church age. And in the church age... Uh, the parousia, which is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's the Greek word for parousia, which means to be caught up. Darby penned this word. The rapture. Um, it is important to note that since that, that word had never been used prior to 1825, but rapture, amillennialists, Prehistoric premillennialists, even postmillennialists would would use this language because it's modern language. For instance, the Trinity isn't the word Trinity is not used in the Bible, but it is a way that we use to articulate what the Bible's talking about. So this is just a modern uh, word that would be used. So this is not the only one that adheres to a rapture, but it is uh, the. Dispensationalism, how all of them had one big coming of Christ. This is one 
One return in two phases, I think, is, is the, proper, the proper way. In this moment, only the church, only those alive are taken, and they are going and they go to heaven. Think left behind, right? Um, what is, what's going to happen when the church is no longer in the earth and everybody's uh, then left behind? Seven-year tribulation. Typically, and, and this is just generic, and, and I'm, we're also, there are, there are pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation views of what happens. So we're just doing the most popular, which is pre-tribulational dispensationalism. Seven-year tribulation, this is typically broken into three and a half years, three and a half years, good three and a half years, um, and a bad three and a half years. Then this, so we're, we're moving left to right here, so now I'm doing another line, uh, would move into a battle of Armageddon. I don't know why I'm feeding back so much, but. Um, which would culminate in the second coming of Christ with the church coming with him and there's a resurrection. With the church coming here, we're going to call this the uh, revelation. In essence, the second coming through dispensationalism is seen as two sections, two phases, the first rapture, the second revelation. What happens during the seven-year tribulation is uh, typically believed to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. So while... (laughs) The world is facing tribulation and burning up. The church is having a big old party. Um, I don't mean that to be facetious or anything. I'm just showing that. After the second coming, Jesus is coming back with the church when he returns. For the, Now we're getting into the millennium, what we're talking about tonight, the thousand-year reign. And then it's going to pretty much follow the same semantics of historic premillennialism, which is Satan's released. Then he's thrown into like a fire. Then everybody's resurrected. For judgment, and then after judgment, new heavens, new earth. Again, it's worth noting there's diversity in a pre, mid, or post-tribulation rapture, when the rapture would happen, when the perugia would happen. The major view uh, is a pre-tribulational rapture. 
again, very signs driven would be different than um, maybe some of the size that we talked about last week. Dispensationalism, though uh, many of us are familiar with the timeline, uh, but dispensationalism is more than a timeline. It is a hermeneutic, a way in which scripture is approached and read of how it breaks down history and how history is to be understood, how humanity is meant to be understood. So now that we've presented all four, um, let's answer the, let's ask the question. So what do we do with Revelation chapter 20? What do we do with verses one through six? What do we do? All of these stem from Revelation chapter 20. Now, I will say dispensationalism, as you can tell, Revelation chapter 20, verse one through six, doesn't say anything about a parousia. Uh, doesn't say, just bring me up just a little bit, just split the difference. Um, doesn't say anything about parousia. And so, doesn't say anything about a tribulation, a seven-year tribulation. Let me, let me clarify that. So, so how is it getting this? This has to work not just by reading what the others do about, about, about the millennium. It's having to look at what is Daniel saying. Um, Daniel chapter 9, I believe, uh, is, is where it gets the predominant view of three and a half, three and a half. Um, there's some addition that happens. It has to do with the 60th, um, the 60 weeks. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into informing it. Again, it is not simply a way of understanding the millennium. It is a whole hermeneutic to understand scripture. So um, what do we do with Revelation 21 through 6? Well, I, I personally, I, I appreciate a view that is faithful to scripture, faithful to the early church, and faithful to um, my own Pentecostal heritage. Again, as Pentecostals, we are strictly um, within reason. We are, we are premillennialists. Um, we, we believe that there's coming a day because there, what's going to happen in the millennium is a part of God's plan of salvation. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet. The millennial reign was a hope of the early persecuted church and should be a hope of the church today. We still recognize that Christ is reigning now and the kingdom of God is inaugurated but not yet consummated. That Jesus is reigning now but yet there's still something to to happen, we, we live in the already and the not yet tension of the kingdom of God. Jesus will reign on the earth for a literal thousand years. This is time for creation to receive the freedom and the redemption that it has been longing for. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated with the resurrection and ascension of Christ, but is not fully realized. On the earth. And last week we said as Pentecostals, we believe the Spirit is proof of the imminence of Christ. That's why a better understanding of this, we talked in week one and a little bit in week two about it, is probably 
under this idea of an inaugurated eschatology. The already and the not yet. There's coming a day that we now live between this age and the age to come and that the kingdom is already a reality but not yet fully consummated on the earth. Remember, salvation is three parts, justification, sanctification, and glorification. But that God is not just saving humans, he's saving the cosmos, he's saving the earth, he's saving creation. And the earth, creation, Let me put it like this first. Humanity was justified at Christ's resurrection, sanctified by the Spirit, and will be glorified at his second coming. Creation will be justified at the second coming because Romans 8, 19 says, creation waits when God will reveal who his children are. They will be revealed at the resurrection They'll be just, the creation will be justified. The millennium, the thousand year reign, in both of these views, the thousand year reign is when the earth is receiving its sanctification, its freeing. And then at the second resurrection, when everyone is resurrected and the day of judgment happens, the earth will receive its glorification in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes There'll be no more death, sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. So then the earth has its glorification. It's a beautiful image. So we are uh, premillennialists. There's a lot of diversity in that. Hey, um, I really wanted to kind of articulate those, those three, four really views. And so that concludes the topic for today. Uh, We always do some Q&A. And if you have any questions, um, I would love to try to answer those. Yes, Mm ma'am? We do believe in the rapture. Well, let me not let me not confuse this. So there are just speak, so a, a, a vast majority of Pentecostals are dispensational, but do not realize, I already erased it, that it stems from cessationism. So I'm just pointing out the history of it. We would call that progressive dispensationalism. So there are accommodations to it. So um, uh, let, 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 let me fix it. Maybe this is going to help you. Historic, um, this moment here, Christ's second coming, the resurrection of the believers, that's the rapture. 
I present it this way because that language was never used until 1825, 1829. Uh-huh. Perugia, yes, being caught up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, I can, I can, we, we, we can read it real quick if you like, and it might help. There would be, um, so I, I, I just want to be clear. I'm not clarifying that this is the Pentecostal one and this is not the Pentecostal one. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm saying what makes us Pentecostal is that we believe in a pre-millennial, that we, that we are pre-millennialists, period. There's a thousand, literal thousand year reign. That's what uh, a majority, 97% of Pentecostals have, have believed. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I, I, I mean, I, I can go another 20 minutes on the side. I'm trying not to. I'm going to try to keep it really, really simple. The context of Matthew, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is Jesus has not come back yet. And the early church is wondering, well, hey, like, these people died. So what's going to happen to them? Because we're all hoping for Jesus to come back. But what's going to happen to these people that have already died? Are they just like, dunzo? Verse 13, now dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. It's, he's given away what he's, why he's writing. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each others with these words. And it keeps going on. It's the end of chapter four. I'm going to make a distinction between historic premillennialists and dispensationalists for a moment. First Thessalonians chapter four, historic premillennialists would, would say it, it continues that what's going to happen in first Thessalonians chapter five, the day of the Lord is the same event that's happening that, that it, now concerning how and will this will happen to your brothers and sisters. We don't need to write to you about that, for you know quite well the day of the Lord's return will be expect, unexpected like a thief in the night. Um, all of this is still talking about what that moment is happening, what's happening in that moment when Jesus returns. Dispensational would make a distinction that what happens in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is different than what happens in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm not arguing for or against one right now. I'm just trying to, trying to, um, to help us understand um, kind of what, what happens. Um, that the day of the Lord 
the Perugia is getting caught up and, and is separate from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is his second coming with the church. That these are two separate moments. Another form of premillennialism would say that these aren't two separate moments. This is one moment. An argument for that, first Thessalonians chapter 4, in the language, this idea of perusia, <laughs> that perusia is actually a military term used by the Roman government. That this is not, this isn't, this isn't, a made-up word or even exclusive to the church, that this is used to talk about what happens when the emperor would come back from war. And when the emperor would come back from war victorious, those in the city would come out to greet him and they would all return together victorious. So the argument against it being a two-phase thing is saying, well, this is, is really, is talk, the imagery of what the Thessalonica church would have is that the rapture is, is our victorious king coming with victory, coming back, us being caught up to meet him in the clouds and to return victorious to reign for a thousand years. So there's not, it's not two separate events. The rapture is the second coming of Christ. It is all one event. It includes the rapture of the church. Another way of viewing it is me caught up with the Lord we go to heaven. The wrath of God is poured out. And then Jesus comes back with the church from the marriage supper of the Lamb to defeat the Antichrist, etc., for the thousand-year reign. The return of Christ and dispensation is, is, is it's not one event, it's two. That's, that's the distinction I'm trying to show. Um, not all, but it's hard. For, for the vast majority of church history, the day of the Lord is his second coming, and he's imminent, and he's coming, and he's going to make things right. So that you, you kind of have to juggle with that. What does this look like that God's going to make things right? Um, does that answer your question? That's the long way around. Yeah. Jolie, and then Sean. Yeah. Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Jesus is going... I'm, I, I can't do the work. If I'm the devil, devil can't cast out the devil. I'm doing the work of God, and I'm binding the devil right now. That would be, in essence, that Jesus, his death defeated the devil permanently. So he's, another, 
and amillennialism. Because in, in Revelation chapter 20, it says that he was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. It's key to the amillennial viewpoint. That he was bound to no longer. So Satan's bound on that, that when Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave and rose again, he has bound Satan from deceiving the nations because now the Gentiles are now grafted in. So there's, there's, um, there, there's reasonings behind <laughs> all of, of the views. So that would be like, yeah, like we still live in a fallen world. There's still sin. There's still deceitfulness of sin. And, and Satan still has power, but he cannot deceive the nations like pre-Christ. I'm trying to do do due diligence to that. Sean? It is strictly, yes. I don't have time to go through. Um, so the length of the tribulation is found in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, the context of Daniel chapter 9 is a set time that Israel... Um, is given to stop sinning, to atone. Uh, the atonement is provided and the temple is rebuilt. This decreed time is 70 weeks long. Um, these 70 weeks comes in three different sections. The first is, is the first seven weeks. This is the announcement that Jerusalem be restored and it ends with the advent of an anointed prince. The second section of the 70 weeks is the 62 weeks in which Jerusalem is rebuilt. And it ends with the anointed priest being cut off. You add seven weeks, 62, you're at 69 weeks now. The third section of the 70 declared weeks is the final week which is the evil prince arrives and destroys the city and the temple. The sacrificial system ends. The abomination that desolates is in the temple. And the abomination lasts half a week. In dispensationalism, right now, the, sev the seventh week has not happened. That would be the 70th week is the tribulation. It is the 69th week has been suspended for a amount of time until Christ returns or the, I'm sorry, Christ doesn't. It, it, it's, it's tricky because Christ returns, but he's not returning. Um, the perusia happens and then the 70th week happens. Um, others, a historic premillennialist view, there's also variables in this, a historic premillennialist view would say that what was decreed in the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 um, has been fulfilled in history. Um, I don't have the exact moments um, of, of what it is. If you're interested, I can send you an article about it. Um, there was, I wish I could remember their names, should have wrote it down. 
um, in essence, uh, the temple was destroyed, the temple was rebuilt, and then Jesus looks at the temple that would have been rebuilt that Daniel had prophesied about and says this temple would come down in 70 AD. Um, it, was, it was fully destroyed. Um, so in dispens- dispensationalism is the only one that has a seven-year literal tribulation. Yes, that is your question. Yes. I think I think um, there is variety in that. We are premillennialists. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. Yes, a lot of people are dispensational. Uh, there's a lot of historic premillennialists. There's not. Um, there's not. Uh, we 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 don't. We adhere to premillennialism. We don't have. We are not dispensational. We are not historic premill. We are premillennialists. The imminence of Christ, Jesus is coming back at any moment. The reason a lot of people are, disp- are progressive dispensationalists, like you're saying, Brother Mike, is because this is about, you know, it's pre-trib. It's like it could happen at any moment, Jesus is coming back. The imminence. We hang our hat on the imminent return of Christ. Jesus could come back whenever he chooses. So we are not... Um, post-millennial, we do not believe that we have to bring in this millennium for Christ to return. Does that make sense? We don't believe in cessation. We are not cessationists. No, we got we believe in the gifts operating. Classical dispensationalism. I, I'm trying in order. F- yes, some would be progressive. I am not progressive. Yeah, I am a historic premillennialist. Yes, sir. So that, that's why I wanted to, to be really careful about this term, like the, that there is no rapture in the others. The rapture is going to be an incredible thing, and it's going to happen at the day of the Lord. I guess that first yeah. Yeah, and he will. He is going to be. Yep. There are people that do believe that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. There are people that believe in this and in this. The reason I'm trying to give a broad view today is because the truth is we all probably believe in all of it kind of together. And the truth is it's probably all of them have credit to some extent. You want to know what we believe? What I taught last week and about being people of the spirit. Once we, once we stop seeing the, whole, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the central theme for Jesus' soon return, we start assuming a lot of stuff. 